Well, a husband and a wife were driving down a country lane on their way to visit some friends, and they came to a muddy patch of road, and the car got bogged down in the big mud hole there. And after a few minutes of trying to get the car out by themselves, the couple saw a, a young farmer driving down the road and driving a, a bunch of oxen in front of him. And the farmer stopped when he saw the couple bogged down in the mud hole and offered to pull the car out of the mud for $50. Well, the husband was very glad. He obviously wasn't getting the car out of the hole, so he accepted. And in a few moments, the car was pulled out and it was free. And the farmer turned to the, to the husband and he said, You know, yours is the 10th car I've pulled out of the mud today. And the husband kind of looked around and He's seeing all these beautifully tended fields all over the place. And he looks at the farmer and he says, When do you have time to plow your fields? At night? And the farmer says, No. He says, Night is when I put water in the hole. (laughs) Well, I got another one for you since you love that one. A farmer is driving down a country road And he spots, or actually a young man is driving down a country road, and he spots this farmer standing out in the middle of a huge grass field. And he pulls off, and he he notices that the farmer is just standing there in this big field, just like this. He's just standing there. He's staring. He's not looking at anything. Just standing. And so the man just, he just kind of casually but quietly walks out there, and he says says to the the farmer, "Uh, Excuse me, mister, but what are you doing? And he says, well, he says, I'm trying to win a Nobel Prize. Well, how's that, the man asked, very puzzled. And he says, well, I hear that they give Nobel Prizes to people who are outstanding in their field. (laughs) Yuck, 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 yuck. You like that one? Well, you're probably wondering, Pastor Lou, please, what's up with these bad farming jokes? Well, I thought you would never ask. The title of this morning's sermon is God's Great Agricultural Plan. And today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture in which Jesus uses two different agricultural pictures to describe what he saw and to motivate his disciples to take action. And our text this morning is Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 39. And in this passage, Jesus uses both a harvesting and a sheep herding analogy to illustrate his point. And the big idea of today's message is seeing God's harvest, fervently ask him for more workers. And before we dive into this passage, let's look at, let's look at some background. Jesus is in the second year of his ministry, and he is going through the area around the Sea of Galilee, which is about 70 miles north of Jerusalem. And you have to understand, this is his, whole, this is his stomping grounds. This is where he was raised and born. And he's kind of going through all the little villages there and uh, preaching the gospel. And the first 34 verses of Matthew chapter 9 relate the fact that he is doing miracle after miracle after miracle as he goes through this region. People are getting healed. They're being raised from the dead. All kinds of things are happening. And as a result, 
The people are just flocking to Jesus. They're coming in droves to see him do these incredible miracles. And now with this background in mind, let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 9, 35 through 39. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, there's, you'll find that there's one in the seat pocket there in front of you. It says, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages and teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And the first thing we want to look at this morning is the disturbing picture that Jesus points out and paints for his disciples in verse 36. And notice right off the bat in in verse 36, he says, seeing the people. And Matthew uses a very interesting word for this word seeing. And in many other places where it's used in in the Bible, it's actually translated knowing. It's translated knowing. And the idea that that Matthew is trying to express here is that Jesus looked intently at the people that he was ministering to. And as a result of intently looking at them, he knew and he understood. He could see what was going on on their insides. And he knew their hurts because he talked with them. And he knew their diseases because he got close to them and he could see them. And he knew their misery because he experienced it, because he was right there with them. Many of you know that that I enjoy woodworking. And when you plane a piece of wood to get it smooth and get it down to thickness, one of the things that's really important to do is you have to take that piece of wood and you have to look at it very, very carefully because you have to see which way the grain is running. Because if you try and plane a piece of wood the wrong way, it literally tears the piece of wood up and it ruins it. And you have to study that wood. And we need to see people in that same way. We need to get up close to them and we need to look at them and we need to study them. And yes... They can be morally and physically tough to be near. They can be unpleasant. But the only way that we can see them like Jesus did is to rub shoulders with them and draw close to them. Do you see people in your neighborhood? Do you see people where you work? Do you get close to them? If you're in school, do you see people at school. You see, seeing is always the first step in effective ministry, in loving ministry to hurting people. And also notice in verse 36 that Jesus, what Jesus saw. He saw people that were distressed and dispirited. And this phrase, it paints a very, very disturbing picture of what Jesus saw. The word distressed, it literally means to be flayed in the Greek. It means to have your skin peeled off. 
Ugh, nasty. Every year my family um, goes up on vacation into the Redwoods, and most of the years we make a point of visiting the visitor center up there in the, in the Redwoods, and we see stuffed versions of animals that are in the park up there. And you know, those things sure look real, but they're not. They're just stuffed shells. And they've been flayed, and they're just skin, nothing else. And that's what Jesus saw when he looked into the faces of those people. He saw people that had been flayed by disease. He saw people that had been flayed by poverty. And he saw people that had been flayed by famine. And also flayed by the stifling religious system that the Pharisees had imposed upon them. Things really haven't changed much in 2,000 years either. Have you ever looked into the eyes of a child whose parents are going through the process of a divorce? You know, the pain you see there, it's kind of like being flayed. You know, they have a brave smile on their face on the outside, but in the inside you can see that they're being ripped apart. Well, 50% of marriages today in America end up in divorce. And guess who are the ones that get sliced and diced? It's the kids. It's the kids. Ever seen a person die of alcohol abuse? I did. I got to see one up close and not pretty ugly about two or three years ago. And that person was a hollow shell of what they used to be when they died at age 48. She'd been flayed. Did you know that 25% of Americans die of some sort of substance abuse? And did you know that 50% of all emergency room admissions are as a result of some sort of alcohol or drug abuse? Flayed people, lots of them, were surrounded by them every day. And Jesus also saw dispirited people. In the Greek, this word literally means to suddenly fling, to throw them. That's what that word means. And you see, the idea is to be tossed and thrown about by life so much that you lose hope. You become discouraged. Ever feel like that? And this is the disturbing reality that Jesus saw as he rubbed shoulders and as he looked intently at these people around him. And this is the reality that many of the people we live with each day exhibit. And the only question is, do we get close enough to see it? Bill lived on my street down at the end of my small little cul-de-sac. And I met him one time because I was going for a walk and I had the chance to, I saw him out in his front yard and I got a chance to meet Bill. And as I was talking to Bill, the Lord was prompting me. He's saying, Lou, you need to get to know that guy. You need to get to know him better. But I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And a few months ago, I found out from one of my neighbors that Bill had died from cancer. And I didn't even know it. I didn't even know it. Here was a distressed and dispirited soul that the Lord had brought into my life and I didn't care enough to do anything about it. 
And I frequently go on walks all the time, and I still walk by his house regularly. And I am haunted by my own indifference. I really am. See, I didn't take the time to see until it was too late. Look at Jesus' reaction to seeing and understanding what these people were feeling in verse 36. He felt compassion for them. He was moved emotionally by the suffering that he saw. And Jesus' evaluation was that these people were like sheep without a shepherd. And this agricultural metaphor that Jesus uses here paints a picture of a people that were frightened, unprotected, and alone. And this is indeed a very, very disturbing picture. Well, after describing the disturbing picture in verse 36, in verse 37, Jesus points out the disquieting problem. And he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And in this verse, Jesus uses another agricultural analogy, that of harvesting grain. You see, he says that in spite of the desperate plight of the people, there were few people that were willing to help. And for whatever reason, few people would just would get involved. And the answer to the huge needs that Jesus saw was meeting the people's physical needs, but as well as meeting their spiritual needs with the gospel. But few cared enough to step up to the plate and do the work. How about today? How are we doing with workers to meet the needs of the distressed and dispirited in America? Well, in a recent survey taken by George Barna, only 18% of born-again Christians knew people well enough, non-Christians, that they could share their faith in a context of trust and credibility. In the same survey, only 4% of born-again Christians considered sharing their faith with non-believers as the most important outcome of what they wanted to accomplish in their life, i.e. the Great Commission. Less than 10% of born-again Christians ever intentionally built relationships with a non-believer in hope of being able to lead that person to Christ. And in our very own valley, here's the number, 85% of people here are unchurched. 85%. And that figure is actually a little low. I'm being conservative. It's actually probably closer to 89%. Let's look at the worldwide situation. 2.2 billion people, approximately 36% of the world's population, live in unreached people groups that have no Christians and no Christian witness in them. Only 11% of total mission spending goes towards reaching these unreached people groups. And only 8% of missionaries are targeting these unreached people groups. And 80% of the poorest people in the world live flayed in these people groups. You see, not much has really changed. The harvest is still plentiful. And the workers are still 
few. And in light of the great commission that the Lord Jesus has given us, this is indeed a very disquieting problem. Well, after describing the disturbing picture and the disquieting problem, in verse 38, Jesus tells his disciples that the answer is the determined prayer. He says, therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And notice that he starts out with the word, therefore. In other words, Jesus is saying to his disciples, he's saying, guys, in light of the huge harvest of distressed and dispirited people and the lack of workers willing to go out into that harvest, here is what you guys need to do. And what does he say to do? He says to beseech the Lord. And this literally means, it means to plead or beg the Lord out of a deep desire of your own heart. And this is the kind of determined prayer that Jesus is telling his disciples to bring before the Father. You see, we need to daily beg the Father, daily, to plead with him for more workers to go into the harvest. And there are a couple of other important things to notice about this verse. First, notice that Jesus doesn't tell his disciples to ask the Lord for more harvesters. He doesn't. What does he tell them to ask for? Workers. He tells them to ask for workers. You see, we're commanded to go and share the gospel with everyone in the world. But we are never the harvesters. We aren't. God is the one who brings people to himself. He is the one who's the harvester. We're just the workers. And notice that Jesus also says, he says, it's the Father's harvest. It's not ours. You see, we're simply his dearly loved, privileged workers in that harvest. And you know what? That takes all the pressure off. It does. Because we're simply the messengers. God is the one who does the harvesting. See, we're called to be witnesses. And what does a witness do? They just simply tell what they've seen and what they've heard. That's all we're called to do. And God is the one who brings the harvest. And there's one more interesting thing that Jesus tells his disciple. And I want to throw this out to you guys in the form of a question. And so put on your thinking caps because I'm asking you to think. Why do you think that Jesus tells his disciples to pray instead of telling them, guys, get out there and start sharing the gospel? Why do you think he does that? What do you think? What's that? They need guidance. Yes, they do. Yes. Any other thoughts? That's good. Reliance upon the Lord. Okay, and that's what prayer is. Yes. Other things? Yeah, that's, you better go out in the power of the Spirit. Anything else? I haven't heard anything from this side. Well, each person can't be everywhere. Well, that's true. And a lot of people can be everywhere. Yes. Good. Any other thoughts? What's that? For God to bring people to you. Yep. Good. All good thoughts. And I think there are at least three different reasons why, and you mentioned some of them, why Jesus told the disciples to pray instead of immediately going out. And first, as we've already talked about, it's God's harvest. 
And as we pray, and as Doug said, we're exercising dependence upon Him. And when the harvest comes, guess who gets the glory? Not us, Him. And He's zealous for His own glory. And secondly, when we fervently seek the Lord and ask Him to send out workers, guess what happens? Our hearts get changed. And what happens is as we fervently seek the Lord and ask Him to send out harvesters, we end up going out with that same sense of fervency in our heart as we end up sharing the gospel. And third, look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 and 5, which are the next verses after the text that we're studying this morning. Matthew states, it says, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over clean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And these Jesus sent out. You see, prayer is always the most important preparation for the work of the kingdom. And Jesus sent out the disciples, but he told them to engage in the battle of fervent prayer first. First. So what do we do with all this? How are we going to apply what we talked about this morning? I would suggest two different applications. First, in the midst of distress and discouragement, turn to Jesus And maybe as I have described what Jesus saw as he looked over the crowd that morning, those distressed and discouraged people, you thought, Pastor Lou, that's me. That's me. And maybe life has left you flayed and tossed around and left you shaken. Well, even today, Jesus sees you. He understands and he has compassion you. He won't necessarily make the problems go away, but he can bring joy and peace in the midst of difficult situations. Turn to him. Turn to him. If you're a Christian, turn to him. You see, he's the source of joy and comfort in the midst of distress and discouragement. And maybe today you are distressed and discouraged, but maybe you have never turned to him. You've never asked Jesus to be your savior, and you're trying to run your own show and failing miserably. You see, trying to run your own show is is essentially what the Bible calls sin. Sin is rebelling against God and trying to live life your own way. And what we earn for our sin is eternal separation And frequently, sin leads to distress and discouragement. While Jesus died on a cross 2,000 years ago to pay the penalty, that eternal separation that we deserve because of our sin. Won't you make today the day that you turn to Jesus if you never have? And I'll walk you through how to do that at the end of this message. Second application. Pray fervently for more workers. Maybe today you know you belong to Jesus, but you look at yourself and you realize that you're standing on the sidelines of God's harvest. And you don't see lost people because you're not looking. 
And you aren't praying for them and you have to admit that you really don't care. And the Lord is urging you to become a worker, but you have resisted. Will you respond today? The response that Jesus is seeking from you is to begin praying, fervently praying, daily praying that the Lord will send workers into His harvest. This is the starting point, and the Lord will take care of the rest, both in your heart and in terms of the harvest itself. I want to read to you a a true story. In July of 1857, a quiet businessman named Jeremiah Lamphere began to visit people, or actually he was asked to begin visit people, in lower New York City to invite them to attend his church, which was in the area. Lamphere was burdened for these lost souls, but decided to begin fervently praying for them prior to any attempt to visit. And he sent out a flyer urging businessmen in the area to begin praying with him for this endeavor. And here is an actual excerpt from the flyer. It said, A day prayer meeting is held every Wednesday from 12 noon to 1 in the building at the rear of the North Dutch Church. This meeting is intended to give merchants, mechanics, clerics, or clerks, strangers, and businessmen an opportunity to stop and call upon the Lord amidst the perplexities incident to their vocations. It will continue for one hour. But it is also designed for those who may find it inconvenient to remain more than five or ten minutes, as well as for those who can spare the whole hour. Accordingly, at 12 noon, September 23rd, 1857, the doors of the church were opened, and Lamphere took his seat to await the response to his invitation. Five minutes went by. No one appeared. Lamphere paced the room in a conflict of fear and faith. You remember what that's like. Ten minutes elapsed. Still no one came. Fifteen minutes. Lamphere was alone. Finally, at 12.30, a step was, uh, uh, steps were heard as someone came down the back steps. And the first person appeared. And shortly thereafter, four more. At 12.35, six people sat down and began to pray. On the following Wednesday, there were 40 people praying. And within six months, 10,000 Businessmen were gathering daily for prayer in New York City. And within two years, a million new converts were added to American churches. Undoubtedly, the greatest revival in New York's colorful history was sweeping the city, and it was of such an order to make the whole nation curious. There was no fanaticism. No hysteria, simply an incredible movement of God's people to pray. See the people, see them, and then fervently ask the Lord for more workers. Let's bow our heads for prayer.
If you are one of the distressed and discouraged and have never given your life to Jesus, make today the day you do. In the quiet of your own heart, talk to Jesus and just say something like this to him. Say, Jesus, my life is a mess because I have been seeking to run it without you. I've sinned and rebelled against you. Please forgive my sin and make me one of your children. I believe you died on the cross to forgive my sins. Please save me. Lord Jesus, for the rest of us here today, cause us to see your lost sheep the way you see them and cause us to have your eyes of compassion. Lord, motivate us, please, to begin fervently asking the Father daily to send out workers into his harvest. We desire that these workers would go forth, Lord, so that your great commission might be fulfilled and that our world might experience the joy and the peace of knowing you. Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen. And if you prayed today and gave your life to the Lord Jesus a few minutes ago, then on the way out, please quietly let me know. You've begun a wonderful relationship with the God of the universe, and I'd love to provide you with some resources to help you experience it in all of its fullness. Tom, if you would close our time. <clears throat>